Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week from The Critic magazine. In the second of three podcasts, to mark the coming presidential election, Professor Jeremy Black, author of Fighting for America and Altered States, talks to the critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, about how the power of the US president was exercised during the Civil War and its aftermath. Professor Black, just before the outset of the attack on Fort Sumter, what was Abraham Lincoln's relations with Congress? Well, I think the problem was that... um national politics had broken down in the United States. I mean, if you look at the 1856 election, James Buchanan, who was the Democrat, had won the South and had also taken Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Indiana in the North. So he'd shown a winning national appeal and had won the presidency. But in 1860, the Democrats were split. There was Stephen Douglas, the Northern Democrat, competing with John Uh, Breckenridge, the southern one. And what that did was it enabled Lincoln, the Republican, who carried the northern states, but none of the southern ones, to win on fewer than 40% of the votes cast. So national politics weren't being contested by effective national parties, I would suggest. And partly as a result, the American mass democracy, I mean, mass democracy understood in the constraints of the period, so for example, not female voters, couldn't generate a consensus. And what that then did in the context of the election of Lincoln is lead to the secession of the South, which meant that, of course, Congress, as you put it, becomes more Republican because many of the Democrats aren't there. So in a sense, you might say Lincoln has better relations uh, with Congress, but Congress is less representative of the country as a whole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and if you take the um, the specific thing, you mentioned Port Sumter, which in fact um, I've seen, um, uh, if you um, rather well, it's ruins. Um, I mean, in a way, what you have there is a clash not between president and Congress, but between the federal government and the state government. Fort Sumter was a federal position, federal military position, as exists in the United States today, and. Um, you know, the state uh, was making demands for the surrender of the position, understandably so. It dominates the harbour of Charleston. Uh, But what you've got there is the reality of national power faced by, as it were, Charleston, which was the forge of southern consciousness and separatism. So, you know, the Confederate forces opened fire on the 12th of April, 1861, belt out a hell of a lot of, uh, I think it's about 3,000 shells and shots have been calculated. Um, uh, But what that doesn't do is lead Lincoln to back down. I mean, in in many respects, you've got a repetition of what had happened in 1775. Not that that's a comparison which the Americans like to hear, in that the sense was when the people 
people are fighting at Concord and Lexington and the original revolutionaries is they were not trying to declare independence. Independence didn't come from or wasn't declared from Britain till the summer of 1776. What they wanted to do was to intimidate, force George III into being, as they saw it, a better king. Um, and uh, what the southern leaders had hoped is that uh, Lincoln would you know, sort of back down in the developing constitutional crisis. And instead of which, what he did, and I'm not criticizing Lincoln for a second, but what he did was he called for 75,000 volunteers, which therefore meant that he was clearly going to resist secession with force. And what that did was trigger an expansion of the Confederacy, because, uh, you know, not that no specialists don't make this mistake, but a mistake that's generally made is to assume that the of the Confederacy was clear cut. Well, of course, it wasn't. Um, uh, only the Lower South uh, seceded at first. Uh, Montgomery, Alabama was the initial capital of the Confederacy. And much of the Upper South, including Virginia, Tennessee, and Kentucky in the 1860 election, had voted not for Breckenbridge, the Southern Democrat, but they'd voted uh, for a chap called John Bell from Tennessee. He was the candidate of the new Constitutional Union Party, which was pledged to back, quote, the Union, the Constitution, and the laws. But what Lincoln's measure did, uh, that his willingness to use troops to um, to act, in other words, you know, taking Fort Sumter not as a limited action, but as a declaration of war, if you like. Um, and again, I'm not saying he's wrong, but I'm certainly saying compromise wasn't to the fore here, uh, was that he led the um, more states in the, in the sense of Arkansas, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia to join the Confederacy. And that was very much changed it. Now, Arkansas, don't wish to irritate any listeners here in Little Rock, but Arkansas was not able to contribute much to the Confederacy. But Virginia, Tennessee, and North Carolina were each much more important in um, economic and population terms than any state in the southern in the Lower South, and in order, they were the leading states in white population in the Confederacy. They generated close to 40% of the Confederacy's armed forces, about half of its crops, and over half of its manufacturing capacity. And they also gave the South um, a, a defense in depth. Now, again, what doesn't happen, as you will know, but again, often British listeners don't know, is this was not the slave states as a whole rebelling because uh, Delaware, Maryland, um, Kentucky, Missouri, and indeed those western parts of Virginia that subsequently become West Virginia did not rebel. I mean, there were some people there who backed the Confederacy, but they did not rebel, So, uh, which again was very important to how the war developed. So there is a considerable amount of contingency at play um, in 1861, but the key elements is the relationship between the president and the state governments, not between the president and Congress. And nevertheless, the declaration of war is the Constitution, Article 2, says that that's the responsibility of, of Congress, not the president. Um, what were the machinations, if that's the right term, between Congress and, and the White House in terms of uh, getting uh, congressional support for 
turning this in, into full-scale war? Well, I wouldn't say it was machination so much. I mean, I would, I would say, actually, it was relatively easy to do, certainly if you contrast it um, with divisions like the divisions in Congress um, over the War of 1812, for example, because those people who didn't agree, agree had, in effect, opted out. Um, so I wouldn't say it was that particularly difficult. I mean, I think the problem was that, as with many other wars which we can think of, um, what had happened was people had signed up, in effect, for a short war. And the assumption would be that the North, with its overwhelming military power, uh, its naval strength, would be able to deliver a short, sharp blow, which would lead the South to negotiate um, you know, with greater willingness. And that had been the uh, 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 assumption, not least because initially the Union, as you will know, made no attempt to abolish uh, slavery. So uh, the basis for a compromise uh, was there. Um, and indeed, um, um, in part, I mean, I don't know how much you know about this, but in part, the uh, um, the initial blow against the South, which leads to the battle known as First Bull Run or First Manassas, does not work for the North. Uh, but their strategy of naval blockade puts a lot of uh, pressure on the South. They're able to capture the South's largest uh, city by amphibious operation, that city being New Orleans. Uh, which, of course, puts an enormous amount of economic pressure on the initial campaigns in the Kentucky, Tennessee uh, area are uh, successful from the northern's point of view. And um, when in the um, 1862, in the late spring, uh, General George McClellan, the commander of the Army of the uh, Potomac, which is the leading Union field army, uh, is la lands... Um, to the east of Richmond, Richmond, Virginia is the Confederate capital, and launches the Peninsula Campaign, it looks at that stage as though the North has won. And therefore, the North hasn't really had to think through the implications of the war it is engaged in, or not really had to think through them in any particular consequential fashion. And then it all goes pear-shaped. Um, the Peninsula Campaign fails, uh, Lee um, becomes commander of the Army of Northern Virginia, the major Confederate strike force. Uh, that marches north and regains the initiative. And, I mean, it stops after Antietam, which is a drawn battle. But again, it does the same thing in 1863, uh, marching into Pennsylvania, where it is stopped at Gettysburg. Now, at that stage... Although you could easily write a military, you know, from the standard sort of rather naff military history ideas that, you know, resources dictate what happens, you might be able to write an account which says the South was bound to lose. The point was that the offensive um, strategy of the South had a point, because this is what I call an asymmetrical war. And what I mean by an asymmetrical war is that there is totally different war goals. The South, to win, does not have to conquer the North. 
you do not need southern troops marching through Washington, let alone New York, Boston or Chicago, for the South to win. All the South has to do is to stop the North attacking. Again, rather like the uh, American patriots in the um, War of American Independence. Um, And, of course, what this means is the South has to make a military or political or both cost to the North that is too great. Now, you might say, well, there's no chance of that. The North is determined. It has more resources, etc., etc. But the point is that the um, the uh, North is maintaining its normal process. Well, Lincoln actually sort of, as it were, cheats a bit, for example, in the 1862 Indiana state legislature. The Democrats win and the Republicans refuse to accept that. Uh, but on the whole, they're keeping going with you know, democratic elections. And so you have the midterms in 62 and crucially the presidential um, election. Um, and in the 1864 presidential election, um, the, uh, the Democrats who, shall we say, I mean, it's fair to say, I mean, they didn't all have a universally the same view, but the Democrats were more willing to t- look at a compromise with the South um, on the basis of maintaining slavery as the price of the Union, if possible, but at the very worst, just having a peace. Um, and um, whereas the Republicans on the uh, are much more a war-winning, war-determined um, policy. So, for example, um, the uh, the Democratic presidential platform in um, 1864 declared, quote, under the pretense of a military necessity or war power higher than the Constitution, the Constitution itself has been disregarded in every part. Sounds rather familiar for, for political debates today, you might say. And, I mean, for example, conscription, which had been agreed by the Senate in 1863, and, you know, greatly increasing federal power, had led to anger, evasion, and riots. So I think it's fair to say that um, we obviously sort of moralize the war because the um, standard approach is understandably totally opposed to slavery. Uh, But we don't always, as a result, appreciate the political tensions there. And you can take it a stage further. Historians generally argue that in 1862 and even more 1863, the radical Republicans and those generals whose views were similar to them were pressing for what has been termed the hard uh, hand of war. In other words, the expropriation of the property of those who were Southerners, uh, if necessary, the destruction of the property, mistreating people as a way to drive home the message that they should behave uh, in in a way suitable to northern views and radical republicans claimed that uh, by seceding the southerners had forfeited their constitutional rights Um, and apart from conscription you get the establishment of a national banking system you get to uh, um, the suspension of habeas corpus for example in maryland you got you get action against critical newspapers so to some commentators This was tyranny in action. To other commentators, this was the necessary course of what was appropriate in order to fight against secession. Um, 
and uh, you know, uh, um, you can debate those issues to the present day. People do debate those issues to the present day. Now, in the end of the day, um, Lincoln uh, won the um, the 1864 election. I mean, very handsomely on the electoral votes, not so handsomely on the uh, on the popular vote. Uh, but again, that's a contrast that is a familiar one in um, in American uh, politics. And what that meant was that Lincoln's victory both meant that the Southern strategy, you know, that was it. It wasn't going to work. And indeed, the war essentially ended six months later. Um, but, you know, until that point, the strategy was perfectly viable. Um, so Lincoln's victory encouraged the sort of encourages today a benign view of the continuance of the political process during the war. Uh, but again, that's in part to do with the nature of hindsight, and it doesn't look at the question of what would have happened if it uh, if, if it hadn't gone well. Um, and you know, um, you know, you 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 can find rhetorical. I mean, most of us know the Gettysburg Address, which was mercifully short. Um, as you may know, he followed one of the most leading academics of the age, a very pompous Harvard professor who went on. For absolute ever talking about how the uh, the Union forces were like the Athenians at Marathon, and whose speech is totally unmemorable. But for example, you know Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the. Um, Confederacy also produces speeches which, you know, wraps themselves in the notion of freedom, not, of course, freedom for slaves. Um, but, you know, you know, I mean, um, uh, he'd responded, for example, in July 1864 to the terms that Lincoln had offered in the Amnesty Proclamation by saying, uh, we are fighting for independence and that or extermination we will have. We will govern ourselves if we have to see every southern plantation sacked and every southern city in flames. Well, fortunately, the generals weren't interested in uh, guerrilla warfare, which is what Davis was willing to push for in um, 65, and they ignored his call to fight on. Um, and what you then have, of course, is the aftermath of uh, the Civil War, um, which, in a sense, is a is a curious one because what you end up with in, in is a, um, a short term northern ascendancy, or I should say, Republican radical Republican ascendancy in the South in period of Reconstruction, supported by uh, northern troops there until 1877, and then. That is brought to an end, essentially, so, uh, you know, as a result, in, in the short term, it's Rutherford P. Hayes's compromise with politicians in order to get himself made president. But in the longer term, it reflects the practical difficulties of a state with a small army. Most of the army had been demobilized in 65 and conscription had gone, trying to enforce a settlement. Um, and you go back to a process in the South of white supremacism, which really goes on lasting till the 1950s, 1960s. So you don't have the South seceding from the Union and you have the end of slavery. But I think you'd be hard pressed to say that you have a situation of which either conformed to what the radical Republicans had wanted or that matched what 
those of us who are today would be would consider equality or freedom. But a last point there is, as I made a point in the previous one, let me just reiterate this. The United States is not, and this is not a criticism, it's an observation. The Uni- United States is not primarily a democracy. The United States is primarily a federation. Um, and because of that, it was very difficult to impose a settlement on part of the country um, against the wishes of a lot of its population. We'll come to reconstruction and, and legacy and the legacy in more detail in a moment. But I just want to dial back a little bit, just back into the second half of the Civil War years. I wonder, uh, Professor Black, if you can say just a little bit more about um, Lincoln as an innovator of executive power, how he used the war to, to strengthen his hand, and whether you can contrast how he envisaged the use of executive power with how his Confederate rival Jefferson Davis envisaged his role. Well, again, that's a very interesting question. Because of his unfortunate assassination, we don't know how Lincoln would have envisaged a post-war peacetime presidency. And I think it's fair to say that um, he, during the war, was cautious. So, for example, he didn't go along with everything the radical Republicans wanted. Um, he uh, initially just abolished slavery in those states that, when he did abolish it, um, in those states that had uh, rebelled and not in the uh, loyal states, the ones I mentioned earlier. So I would say that you've not got here a figure of, shall we say, Robespierre or Lenin-like qualities or character. Um um, like Jefferson Davis, um, he had the difficulty of, um, as it were, states' rights. Uh, paradoxically, that was harder for Jefferson Davis because, and the same thing, of course, pertained during the American War of Independence. If in the American War of Independence you begin by opposing the supposed tyranny of Britain and the supposed tyranny of government injunctions, it's then very difficult to persuade people to, you know, to raise taxes for for an effort they may not wish to raise taxes for because you know 1775 was you know a tax in one way of respect I mean a tax rate a tax uh, a tax riot um, just as you know if you wish to be disparaging 1861 was in many respects although other factors we know play a role uh, you know a a slave owners sort of um, you know jamboree for their own behalf so. Um, so in a way, Jefferson Davis has a harder position, and I think it's fair to say also that although he had, you know, he was one of the more distinguished politicians of the mid-19th century in the United States as a whole, I don't think that the war brought out the same degree of quality of mind or intellect that you saw with Lincoln. Um, but, I mean, Lincoln in part um, is having to do, like many presidents in these circumstances, both wage war, conduct politics, and consider the post-war environment. And um, I think he does that reasonably successfully. But then again, that's because we're talking about the benefit of hindsight. He won the 64 presidential election. And the 64 presidential election was in some respects um, 
closer than, shall we say, the 1944 election, which uh, FDR won during World War II. Um, and I think that's something worth thinking about. Um, the, um, I mean, it's certainly very striking. I, you know, for my book on um, on uh, fighting for America, and for, in fact, also I did a separate book years ago on the military history of America from 1775 to 1865. And one of the things I went through were the papers of the British uh, envoy, and indeed I looked at the French counterpart. And there is... Um, really no sense that Lincoln is bound to prevail politically. I think that's a key point. Now, um, you know, as with always the case, you have to consider the context of documents. In part, uh, these envoys are reflecting wish fulfillment. In part, they're reflecting the fact that they have certainly the British one, good links with the, uh, some of the senior Democrat politicians. Uh, but equally, their job is to try and be accurate observers of what is going on. And I think it's fair to say that you know, with, with Lincoln, we know in hindsight the two things about him. One, that, well, three things. One, that he has to win the presidential election. Two, that uh, the 64, the re-election. Two, that his side is to win the Civil War. And three, that he's to be assassinated. And all of those provide a context which affects our judgments in hindsight about what at the time were possibly, um, you know, calls that were difficult to make and in the context of the adversarial politics of the period. I mean, I use the term the radical Republicans as if they were all agreed on something. Well, let me tell you, I mean, <laughs> Congress, even though they'd got rid of um, the, the, the Southerners by the process of these people withdrawing, um, the um, I think it's fair to say that it was still a fairly difficult. A difficult relationship. Uh, in the last year of war, of course, um, President Lincoln is attempting to find some form of um, a rapprochement with the South to try and bring them back into the Union. A lot of these, certainly the, the radical Republicans, are much more uh, continuing to be much more bellicose. They, from a constitutional as well as a political perspective, don't like his attempted use of presidential directives. He simply pockets the veto for the, of their Wade Davis bill and, and simply never implements it. Is this a period where you would say under the pressure of war the relationship between the Hill and the White House has broken down? Well, I think one uses the term broken down possibly uh, too readily, and I think that's a comment on how we today look at politics and, you know, the, if you like, the hysteria that surrounded debates over British politics in the years of Brexit or, um, you know, in periods of time in the United States. Um, you may or may not dislike the policies of governments. You may or may not feel that they are acting in what you think of as an inappropriate fashion, um, but the idea that it uh, that there is a clear constitutional framework which is breached is one I think that one has to uh, handle with a little bit more uh, amplitude than is being done. I mean, this was America facing a very 
difficult and unusual task. There had been, obviously, as you will know, the deployment of troops before, um, say, the Whiskey Rebellion with, um, uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, in the Washington years, the nullification crisis. You know, federal troops had been deployed before, but not in the process of war in this fashion. Uh, in fact, shortly before the Civil War, troops had been sent, although it was not a state at that point, um, to deal with the Mormons. Um, uh, but these were not, you know, this, the scale was now far, far greater. And I'm not myself always convinced that people's ideas of what are, as it were, fixed characteristics are sufficiently nuanced to deal with the problems that can arise. Mm -hmm. um, so much for, for Lincoln's relations with the politicians. What about his relations with his generals? Should we see him as a, as a, as in his role as commander-in-chief a, a generalismo who's closely involved with his major generals in, in like uh, Sherman and Grant in, in military strategy, or um, essentially was the war prosecuted by uh, the major generals with, with um, Lincoln uh, having a, a much less day-to-day uh, -day level of engagement? Hmm, that's again a very interesting question. Well, Lincoln very wisely was known Napoleon III, so... Um, so I don't think the term generalissimo is one that I would uh, that I would um, uh, go with. I think there is a problem in the United States in that period in that there isn't an effective, good, what we would call general staff. I mean, general staffs often get it wrong. I mean, people tend to forget the Germans lost both world wars, and they're generally credited with having invented and had the best general staff system. But I think there is a problem there. Um, and there is a degree of ad hocery in the American uh, war effort, and in particular in reconciling the distribution of resources and priorities between the very disparate areas of our operation, of which the three most important are east of the Appalachians, west of the Appalachians, and the amphibious sphere. But that does in no way exhaust what we could be talking about. So there is a practical set of problems. You might argue uh, that actually it would have been better if Lincoln could have been a bit more forceful. You might argue, for example, it would have been better if McClellan had been sacked earlier, etc., etc. There's all sorts of things you could say. But no, I wouldn't say that Lincoln was trying to run the show, uh, not at all, in fact. Um, I would say that he trusted in the competence of generals and then tried to appoint better ones when the initial ones were not up to the scratch. I mean, it is a difficult one. As you yourself have been talking about, there is a state dimension to it. And many of the generals, in fact, just as many of the colonels of regiments, um, reflect, reflect the particular social and political exigencies within individual states. So, you know, in Philadelphia, for example, the Union League raises regiments. It then expects to have a say in who, 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 you know, who commands them. So, you know, that sort of problem. And again, one of the other practical problems affecting the North is that many of the more talented commanders of what had been a very small corpus, I mean, West Point prior to the war is small, uh, many of them had gone and joined the South. So, that, you know, they've only got so much talent and you often only find talent during the course of a war. One of the things about a long war, the same thing in World War II, where
where uh, Winston Churchill had to sack many generals, is you only discover under the pressure of military activity uh, who is not good enough. And there's a marvellous book um, came out in 76, Norman Dixon's On the Psychology of Military Incompetence, in which he discusses why it is that the kind of person that rises in the military in peacetime is usually absolutely no good in wartime. <laughs> That's something worth thinking about. Well, um, from wartime to peacetime, um, uh, President Lincoln is assassinated, so we never get the opportunity to see how he would have uh, pursued presidential powers in peacetime. Instead, we, we get Andrew Johnson, who tends to get a... a, a, a you know, a fairly bad rap uh, in history, as, as he had a tough time at the time. Uh, he, he's obviously Im impeached, the first president to face a, a, an impeachment hearing. Um, to what extent was Johnson's difficulties down to Congress trying to reassert its authority after... Uh, after wartime? Well, I mean, I think that's part of it, but I don't, I don't think Johnson exactly helped himself. Um, I mean, obviously, he is somebody that is designed as a vice presidential candidate who can who can re reflect a different sectional interest than the president, and which is classic American policy. I mean, that, for example, is why Tyler was appointed to run alongside Harrison, and then you know, Harrison dies and Tyler takes over. So, you know, and, it, and is not what he's wanted. So it's, it's you know, it's, 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 not, it's not a surprise, but Johnson is a very difficult man. I think there's no two ways about it. Um, and you have got a, um, a classic example of the problem of a political system in which both sides uh, push it towards their own, their own views. Um, I mean, I suppose the the good thing about it is that America hadn't followed on by either, as had been feared by some external commentators, um, going to uh, you know send troops into Mexico against the French, or as had been feared by the British, um, going on to uh, try and drive them out of Canada. Um, uh, instead of which, um, what you get is the purchase of Alaska, which is not going to lot, but you know by consent with the Russians, that isn't going to allow, leave them with a uh, political in incubus. I mean, you know. I mean, one way, if you're looking at Johnson, I mean, you know, he's a Democrat. Uh, he'd been a slave owner. He'd been a senator from Tennessee. I mean, in his eyes, he sought conciliation, rapid return to normality in the shape of Southern self-government. Um, but you know, as you know, the Republican majority in Congress disagreed and they pushed through the uh, Reconstruction Acts of 1867. And one way to look at it is that... Um, you know, um, yeah, I mean, one way I would look at it is this represented a perfectly honest political difference of opinion and one in which both sides sought to use the political resources they had. Mm. Is it your view that really it should never have gone to an impeachment case? Uh, and I mean, the, the, the particular point of difference was on the, the Tenure of Office Act where Congress said that the, the, the cabinet minister could be um, fired from the government by the president without congressional approval, and, and Johnson proceeded to do that. I mean, a congressional law which was subsequently repealed, I think, in the 1880s in, in any case. Uh, was it just a matter of different personalities that might never have happened, or 
was this a, a, a real um, test of, of authority between legislature and executive? Well, it's a test of authority, but, I mean, let's be clear about this. I mean, uh, Johnson himself considered using the army against Congress in early 68, only to find the generals weren't willing to accept his plan. What he wanted was to create a sizable new military unit based near Washington, which could, in effect, intimidate Congress. And, you know, <laughs> I think it's fair to say there had been a total breakdown in relations. I think that's, that's what you could fairly say. Um, and again, not surprising. I mean, people uh, provide all, all constitutional systems hit problems. So, you know, um, the if you are going to have a president who has an independent validation, if you like, from the electorate and an independent source of authority to the legislature, then it is it is beyond belief that you will not have periodic crises in relations between uh, president and and Congress. And um, they will obviously both strain the Constitution as its existing provisions are, but also uh, expose where those existing provisions don't work or where those who are due to arbitrate on those provisions, let us say the Supreme Court, is not in a good position to do so. But, I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that Grant didn't exactly, who was a much more talented man in my view than uh, Johnson, uh, does not exactly have a um, what you might call a, uh, a, a an easy an easy period with Congress himself. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in the last thirty years of the nineteenth century, we have accession a succession of presidents like Hayes, Garfield, Arthur, Cleveland, Harrison, um, who. Uh, History has tended to give a minor role in the development of America during this period. Um, is this being fair, or is this an actual reflection that, that executive power um, stood back from the, the real levers of development in America during, during the last um, quarter of, of, the, of the 19th century? Well, again, I mean, you know, you can look at this in different ways, can't you? I mean, I myself take the view that small government is probably the best. And um, would you really have wanted a, a domineering president who either was determined to change the Constitution, wanted to embark America earlier on a period of uh, imperialist expansion, whatever? Um, uh, probably not. Um, uh, so what you actually get is a situation in which um, the United States economically develops very rapidly without becoming a militarized power um, at a very modest um, sort of um, use of resource. It ends um, the situation with the Native Americans who are beaten up thrown onto reservations, but that, in a sense, that despoilation of territory provides enormous opportunities. Uh, conflict is avoided uh, with foreign powers, particularly uh, with Britain, with the neighbor to the north, but also with Mexico, the neighbor to the south. Um, and, you know, the, this is a period in which the economy uh, lets rip. And um, I don't think that, in a way, you could really have fairly said that it would have been better if you'd had an alternative sense of state 
politics. I mean, you know, it would have been naive to anticipate a kind of equivalent of a state socialism in America in that period. So therefore, a more modest government, which is what you've got, um, with a kind of night watchman state uh, at the federal level, proves reasonable. I mean, you know, there are issues, as you're, as you're well aware. I mean, the use of uh, federal troops against strikers reflects um, the... Um, the, as it were, pro-business uh, attitudes of, of administrations, the unwillingness to act against um, sort of what is clearly racist, white racist governments in the South uh, reflects a general inclination to, uh, to respect the existing distribution of power and not to, put, not to uh, limit the position of the states, the individual states. Um, you know, none of this should surprise us. Incidentally, what is interesting about this group uh, from Grant onwards is I think I'm right in saying four of them had been generals in the, obviously, the Union side uh, in the Civil War, or, or um, I think one of them maybe had been a, 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 an officer at a lower level. Um, but, you know, you're talking about um, a... Um, uh, an elite who, if you like, um, were not the radical Republicans or certainly had, were willing to accept a very different world. Well, from um, presidents of what you call night watchman government, taking us to the end of the 19th century, the 20th century is the period of many of the big personality presidents and bigger government. We're going to discuss that uh, next week as we continue our exploration of the rise of executive power in America. But for the moment, Professor Black, thank you very much for your exploration. That's very kind, and thank you very much. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.